Well, hey, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is one of your first times with us, if you're newer, just want to extend a special welcome to you. Glad that you are worshiping with us here this morning. Uh, it's good to be together, to be able to worship together, to be able to stand together, to get to know um, one another. And like we've talked about, Brian introduced this idea of Lent in plain sight, where we're looking at these everyday objects, and today looking at shoes. And uh, just in a moment of confession, I guess, from the get-go, uh, I love shoes. Always have, always have. I'm, I'm drawn to shoes. If there's ever anything that I, that I want when it comes to articles of clothing, it's shoes. Uh, that's what I always run to. That's what I always go to. If my wife says, hey, let's go shoe shopping, I'm, I'm all in. And I, I absolutely love it. And I've noticed that when I was younger, my shoe preferences were really tied to kind of playing basketball, tied to other basketball players. So guys like MJ, guys like Tracy McGrady, Penny Hardaway, Scottie Pippen, Grant Hill, all those kinds of guys had their own shoe deals and they would make their shoes and I loved it. I wanted every single one of them, right? In fact, I would tell you that my favorite shoe from my childhood are the Tracy McGrady 2, the T-Mac 2s, right? If you ever get a chance, go look at them. They were my favorite probably back in like 2000, I don't know, what event, 2002, 2003, I would guess they came out. Uh, but my favorite shoe of all time, favorite shoe of all time. And as I've gotten older and don't really play basketball anymore, my shoe preferences aren't really tied to a person, but they're really tied to functionality, right? Like, like I have a pair of shoes for different things that I do. I have, I have my mowing shoes. I have my outdoor work shoes. I have my flip-flops, just, you know, if I need to take the trash out, go get the mail. Uh, I've got my comfy shoes if I'm going to do a lot of walking. I've got dress shoes if there's ever a moment I have to wear those. I've got, I've got different shoes based on the function at which I am going to try and do. Now this morning, what I, what I want to do is kind of make a jump, if you will, because I think we have that kind of understanding when it comes to our shoes. And even maybe you are thinking of different shoes you wear at different times. Uh, and I want to make a jump to kind of our, our spiritual life with this and our life with God. Is that life... Life with God is full of purpose and meaning. That God has called us to fulfill something. And we have, in our own way, found a pair of shoes in order to wear to accomplish that purpose and meaning. Now, what's, what's tricky is sometimes our shoes that we're wearing aren't really helping us accomplish the goal and the purpose that God has called us to. Right? And so we have to begin this time just kind of realizing and understanding and, and uh going through this time that maybe the way we're living this life that God has called us to isn't really accomplishing what our purpose is. And so I have two, two goals for us this morning. Is that one, we would kind of rediscover our purpose as followers of Jesus. What is our purpose? What is our meaning here on life before, before anything else? What is it that God is calling us to? As followers of Jesus, this is uh, our hope. This is what he's calling us to. This is our purpose, our meaning. This is where we find fulfillment. What is that? Because that purpose should then influence what shoes we wear. Right? Like, I'm not going to wear dress shoes to go cut my grass. And so we have to begin kind of in this place of saying and evaluate and look at and start with what is our purpose as followers of Jesus? What's our purpose? And then what kind of shoes do we need to wear to accomplish that purpose? Now, before we go on, things are going to get a little bit weird this morning. 
okay? And it's going to start now. So I need you to trust me in these moments, okay? Because this is going to be, this might be uncomfortable, this might be difficult, but this is what I'm going to do. Because in the Old Testament, we have this scenario where God reveals himself as a burning bush, right? And he talks to Moses. And one of the first things he says to Moses is, Moses, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. So this morning, as an act of, of recognizing the holiness of our time together, I'm going to invite us to take off our shoes. So if you're able and willing and you're not uncomfortable, maybe you have mismatched socks. If that's the case, that's a cool thing to do now. Everyone's doing it. Um, but let's just go ahead and let's just slip off our shoes if you are willing to do that as we all collectively begin to breathe through our mouths and not our noses. Which, what would be worse, to inhale, like, foot particles or to, uh, anyways, that doesn't matter. Uh, so let's just begin here. I know this may seem weird, this may seem uncomfortable, and that's okay. There's a point to it. We'll get there, I promise. Just trust me here at the get-go. But that's our goal this morning, is that we would discover, rediscover maybe what our purpose is as followers of Jesus, and then evaluate what shoes what shoes are we wearing? What shoes do we need to wear in this scenario? So let's, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done for us. I pray in these moments, God, that the, it would just be uh, a clear communication of what it is you're trying to accomplish in our lives. That your voice would be the loudest voice and it would be clearly heard. May we tune our minds and our hearts and our ears to listen to you and listen for you as you draw us into close relationship with you. We give you this time. We submit and surrender to your ways. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Um, and there's a lot going on. There's a, this is kind of a dialogue between a few different people. Uh, we have John the Baptist and the priests and Levites a little bit. And so just for clarity's sake, John the Baptist... And John the disciple, who we believe wrote the book of John, are two different people. All right? they're, they're not the same person. Two Johns, two different people. They're not the same guy. All right? Just for clarity, purpose, a little bit. So John chapter 1, starting in verse 19, says this. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight, make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany at the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's a lot going on here in this dialogue, and we don't have time to get into some of that stuff when they talk about like Elijah and the prophet. And if you have questions about that, is that something that kind of piques your interest I'd love to have that conversation with you afterwards. I just, we don't have time to get into it this morning. Um, because this morning what I want to do is kind of focus in on two phrases that John the Baptist uses in this dialogue, in this time uh, that he is kind of uh, communicating here. And the first one is this, is this, 
this phrase that he says that he's unworthy to untie his sandals. So John the Baptist is saying that he's unworthy to, to untie the sandals of what we know as Jesus, right? What we know as Jesus. And so uh, we have to understand that John may not know all the things that he's saying right now. He may not know the levels at which all this is going because Jesus has just kind of popped onto the scene, right? On this side of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit has inspired and enlightened us to kind of see this in a little bit different. So we have to begin to understand that John, in saying these phrases, he's saying them for a reason. And in this reason, culturally speaking, what he's doing is he's identifying himself as a slave. He's identifying himself as a slave in this phrase. Because in this time and day, not even slaves were worthy to untie their master's sandals. Not even slaves were worthy of it. And so he sets up this huge gap between himself and what we know as Jesus. He says, there is, a, there is this gap here. that The one you're looking for is way better. He's, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Like I'm not even worthy to touch his feet that he's so much better than me. And I think this is interesting because oftentimes we feel like to make a big deal about God, we have to make a small deal about ourselves. See, and John doesn't do this. John elevates God and Jesus to a place that's so much greater without, or without uh, uh, bringing shame or guilt on himself. He, just, he has this high view of Jesus, this high view of God that, that he says in comparison, I'm, just, I'm like a slave, man. And so when, when John uses this phrase and sets up this gap between himself and, and Jesus, we have to ask the question, well, well, then what is it about Jesus that sets him up so much higher? What is it about Jesus that, that puts him on another level that compared to him, we are like a, a slave unworthy to, to untie his sandals? And this is where we can jump to the second phrase that I want to look at this morning. And it's this phrase, the Lamb of God the Lamb of God, and to go on to finish that, that takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. So we can understand that this idea, the Lamb of God, declaring Jesus the Lamb of God, brings up three images for us that we can go back and throughout Scripture kind of trace. And the first image that we can see with Jesus being called the Lamb of God is the image of the sacrificial lamb, the sacrificial lamb. Way back in Genesis, we have a story of Abraham and Isaac, right? Abraham and his wife Sarah were, were unable to have children, and God promises Abraham that through him he will have, or he, that Abraham will have descendants that will outnumber the stars, right? And so God blesses Abraham and Sarah with one child, Isaac, right? The, the promise of many, of many descendants comes through one child, Isaac, and then there's this moment in Abraham's story that God asks Abraham to actually sacrifice Isaac, right? And so Abraham is taking his son up a mountain. They're climbing this mountain uh, together with the wood and everything they would need to make a sacrifice. And Isaac's asking, hey, hey dad, where's the, uh, where's the animal? Like, what's going on here? What's happening? Where's the animal? And Abraham's saying, you know, God's going to provide. God's going to provide. And they get up there. They get everything set up. Isaac lays down on the altar, and Abraham is ready. And then all of a sudden, there's an angel that appears that says, stop. And then they look to the side, and there's a ram caught in a bush. 
right? And so this ram is the sacrificial lamb, if you will, for Isaac. For Isaac. Then when we move forward just a little bit further in Exodus, we have the story of Moses uh, uh, trying to lead the, the Israelite people out of slavery from Egypt. And there are the plagues that are going on to try to convince Pharaoh to let him go. And there comes to this last plague where this spirit was going to move through and kill the firstborn son of every home. And the instructions from Moses to be able to uh, uh, pass this or to get through this would be to kill a lamb and take its blood and wipe it on the door frames. Right? So that the spirit who would come in and kill the firstborn son would then pass over. Right? This is the Passover feast that the Israelite people would, would celebrate, would be this experience. Now, what we have to understand that as this sacrificial lamb, we, we see images of both an individual sacrifice for Isaac and a corporate sacrifice for a community. Right? The, the Israelite people are very much saved by these lambs that they kill and, and, and the blood on their door frames, but very much so in the same way, Isaac is saved by the ram that's caught in the bush. And so what we can understand is that our faith is deeply personal. It is an individual thing that God has saved you, but we cannot divorce that from the truth that also God has saved us. Right? And so our faith is deeply personal, but because he has saved us, our faith is not to be private. That it is not something that we just kind of hold and hide from people. That it is something that we uh, uh, enact and work out through in community. Right? And so we have this sacrificial lamb as the first image that as John the Baptist is declaring Jesus the lamb of God, we can look back and see these stories and go, oh man, this is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. The story of, of Abraham and Isaac is to point to Jesus. The story of the, the Passover is to point to Jesus. And then when we go a little bit, 100 years further down the road, we come to the prophet Isaiah. And we get the silent lamb. We get the silent lamb. And in, this, in the book of Isaiah, there is this moment. It's called the poem of the suffering servant. right? And Isaiah begins to prophesy through, uh, God prophesies through Isaiah to say that he's calling out a leader to lead the nations. To lead his nation. But the people are going to abuse him. And we come to this point in Isaiah uh, chapter 53, 7 that says this. Oh man, where is it? Oh, it's up there. Sweet. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. We understand this sheep, this person who was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not uh, uh, open his mouth would be the person of Jesus. See, Isaiah is pointing people to Jesus. He's saying as Jesus was going to the cross, he stood before the people and he didn't plead his case. As he was going to the cross, he stood before those that were accusing him and didn't try to defend himself. That he was silent. He was silent. And this is interesting because we look at these, these pictures, the sacrificial lamb, the silent lamb, and we see this happening on the cross. We see the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit inspiring the, the writers to say things that are pointing people always to Jesus on the cross. 
And we look at this sometimes and it feels as though it's kind of a, a, a weak or even a, um, a less than picture that the silence and the sacrificial lamb may not be enough. But what we get on this side of the resurrection, one of the things, a gift that we have is that we don't just see Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. We don't just see him as the silent lamb, but now we can see him as the victorious lamb. And here's, we're going to jump um, to Revelation chapter 5. Now, um, some people are kind of, when you talk about Revelation, they get a little bit weird just because Revelation has a lot of weird things in it. Um, we're going to do some work this morning to kind of help ease that and kind of try to understand this as best I can, or as best as we can. So we're going to start in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? So I want to stop here. We have to understand, John, the, John, who's writing Revelation, John the disciple, not John the Baptist, right? We think is writing Revelation. There's debate there, but that doesn't matter. Um, he has been transported to the throne room of heaven. In, in his vision, he's standing before the throne room of heaven. And in this throne room, it's not just a place uh, to be, it's, it's very much like there's, there's things to be done. There's, there's work that needs to happen. This throne room is going somewhere. There's a purpose. There's a reason. There's something going on in the throne room. And we get to Revelation chapter 5, and it says there's a scroll. This scroll represents the redemptive plan of God for all humanity and creation. This scroll in Revelation chapter 5 is the, the redemptive plan of God to restore humanity and creation back to him. And no one can open it. They're looking around the angels saying, is anybody worthy? Can anyone open the scroll? Can anybody enact the redemptive plan of God for all humanity? Can anybody be, do that? And we go on. In verse 3 it says, But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. goes on, verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll to look inside. Just think about how, how John is feeling in this moment. Right there in front of him, in the throne room of heaven, there is the plan to restore humanity, to redeem humanity, and to make creation what it was created to be from the very beginning. It's right there. All it needs to do is just be opened. Just somebody open it. And there's no one on earth, in heaven, or under the earth, that could. And John just begins to cry. Because it's right there. Is anybody worthy to open the scroll? Is anybody worthy to enact the redemptive plan of God? And then we have this moment in verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So let's take a, let's take a moment here and, and process all that's kind of been going on, is that we have this throne room, and this scroll represents the redemptive plan for humanity and all of creation to be back to, brought back to its original uh, uh, state. And, and the angel's asking, hey, is anybody, can anybody open this? 
Can we get this thing going? Can we start this plan? Can we start this action? And no one can. And John is, is weeping and crying because it's right there. And he realizes in himself how unworthy he is to even begin to open that scroll. And then an elder comes over and puts their arm around him. You can just see it, right? And he says, hey, don't weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is worthy to open the scroll. And next, in these next verses, it's the most decisive point in all of Scripture, in my opinion, in this thing. And in verse 6, it says this. He hears the idea of the lion. And in verse 6, it goes on to say, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So we have this moment where John hears, hey, don't worry, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He can, un- he, can, he can open the scroll. He can act the redemptive plan of God for all of humanity and all for creation. And then John looks, and what does he see? He sees a lamb that looks it's been, as though it's been slain. N.T. Wright says it better than, than I could. And he says this, and it would be up on your screen. It says, the lion is the symbol both of ultimate power and of supreme royalty. While the lamb symbolizes both gentle vulnerability and, through its sacrifice, the ultimate weakness of death. But the two are now to be fused together completely and forever. From this moment on, we are to understand that the victory won by the lion is accomplished through the sacrifice of the lamb and in no other way. The victory won by the lion is to be accomplished through the sacrifice of the lamb and in no other way. See, what's interesting here, the book of Revelation, what what it does, the gift that this book is to us is that it lets us peek behind the curtain and to see what's really happening. That the, the walk of Jesus to the silent walk to Jesus on the cross and the sacrificial lamb on the cross, as we see that as weakness of like, why isn't he trying to save himself? When we get to be able to peek behind the curtain in Revelation, this is what we see. That it's in the sacrificial and the silent lamb that the victory of the lion is had. Now, and this is all well and good, but it doesn't just stop there. Right? Like I said, the throne room has, there's purpose here. There's meaning here. There's something to be done. And it has to do with the scroll and and Jesus coming, the lamb that was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who, who can open the scroll and begin to enact the redemptive plan of God for all humanity and creation. It would be really easy for us to sit back and say, okay, cool, Jesus, go ahead and do that. But what follows in Revelation gives us a clue as to what our purpose is. It says in verse 8, And when he had taken it, when the Lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased all people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. It's not just, hey, Jesus, yeah, you're worthy to open that scroll. Way to go, man, you did it. But it's now you have purchased all people with your blood so that we are a kingdom and we are priests who serve God. And so when we begin to realize and think about reframing our purpose, 
reframing and, and rediscovering our purpose as followers of Jesus, it is to always point people to the glory of Christ. In the cross where we see weakness, where we see silence and sacrifice, what's actually happening is the victory of the lion, is the glory And so our purpose as followers of Jesus is to continually point people to his glory. To not think less of ourselves, to not not put ourselves down, but have such a high view of him and his glory and what happened on the cross. That in the cross there is victory. In In the sacrificial lamb is the victory of the lion. And this is our purpose as followers of Jesus. And then it makes us ask the question, what would, the kind of, what would this kind of life look like? What kind of life, what would this kind of life look like? One that was constantly pointing people to the glory of Christ. Not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking so much of Jesus. What would it look like? This morning, when you came in on your seats, you have these little business card-sized pieces of paper. What we're going to do this morning is as we think about this question, the worship team's going to come out and they're going to lead us in a song. And I just want you to process and have some time to ask the Holy Spirit, what is it for you? What does that look, life look like? How should your relationships be different? How should we engage with our jobs and with our families and with our kids and our spouses and our friends? How should we engage in our life differently to point people to Jesus? What does that life actually look like? And as this song is playing, I just want you to process through that and think about that. And write, maybe there's only one thing, maybe there's two, maybe there's three, maybe there's eight. I don't know. But we want to give some space for the Holy Spirit to begin to move and direct and to speak to you. Because it may look different for you than it does for someone else. But if we are unified in the purpose of always pointing others to Christ, the glory of Christ... The way that looks will be different for each of us. So in these next few moments as the worship team comes out, uh, to just kind of process through and ask yourself that question, what does my life look like? What does my life look like so that we can be pointing people to the glory of Christ? Let's pray. Jesus, in these next few moments, as we seek to, to hear you, to teach us what it means to follow after you, and to live a life that points people to your glory. I pray that your spirit would be clear and loud in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.